Welcome back to OMG Omics. As you know, the field of proteomics is one of the largest that encompasses mass spectrometry. And so we're devoting several episodes to bringing you specific subsets of that. Today, we're gonna to look at plasma proteomics with our guest, Daniel Hochberg. Hey, Daniel, thank you so much for being here today. So you're our fourth guest now on the OMG Omics podcast series, and I'm starting to notice an unintended trend for some of our guests here. So you have a varied career background, and right now you're experiencing that startup life. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to this current position? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, first of all, Kate, for, for having me. And, and I think that's like always a great opportunity to, to connect throughout like different companies and throughout our community to just chat about what we're excited about, which is like driving molecular research. And um, well, how, how did I end up in the Silicon Valley, right? So it was a pretty exciting journey. And, and I really, really love like how all the things developed. Uh, I was studying molecular biotechnology in my master's and bachelor's in Munich. So that's where, where I'm originally, well, not coming from, but but that's where, where my academic life started. And um, uh, I had my first experience with a startup during that time, actually building molecular machineries and factories to degrade resilient substrates like like, uh, for example, uh, wood or like like uh, other very, very hard to degrade substrates. And that was, I think, the first time that I really got the experience of doing research, but with the focus of building products. And uh, um, that I, I think it, it actually sparked my interest in uh, uh, that that also got me moving uh, into the industry uh, for doing research. I then continued my PhD uh, in, in Matthias Mann's lab, where I joined the proteomics efforts dissecting the molecular mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases, which, as we know, right, it's a very protein-centric disease uh, spectrum where, where proteins are aggregating and they particularly are toxic for, for certain types of neurons. So using proteomics to understand how that is happening and how, how, how that is, how the pathology is moving forward in order to understand how we can do something about that was super exciting. Um, I, I also did a postdoc there, focusing more on the computational uh, aspects of proteomics, uh, which which I consider to be uh, uh, like a very important ingredient. It's not only the biochemistry, but it's also like how do we deal with the big data that we are generating. And then I moved to to Stanford, joining Mike Snyder's lab, and I didn't just want to continue to work on proteins, but but add like another molecular layer. So so I was driving the lipidomics in his lab, still like focusing on the mass spec work and and also integrating the different ohms uh, computationally. But but that really broadened my horizon and and like like under, tr trying to understand eventually. Um, how these different molecular classes act together to basically define what 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 what's life and what how how it is changing in in the context of diseases, and yeah, then I joined Seer uh, uh, back then, very young company, very small pre-IPO startup. So we were sitting in a single room doing research, like pretty much across the domains. We had mass spec people, we had data scientists, we had analytical chemists, and we were building a technology to. To, to get a much deeper understanding of the molecular composition, the proteomics composition of complex biosamples like blood. And that was very exciting, seeing the company grow from this very small startup to, to something that is now a post-IPO company, right, where we have like over a hundred of people working together across all these domains. And, and I could grow with the company, which I'm really, really grateful for. 
that's awesome. I mean, you really had such a privilege to have varied interests, opportunities, and touch points across so many different scientific areas. Do you have any advice maybe for, for a current PhD student or someone who knows that they want to go out and do great things? They have a mind that can contribute to the world of scientific problems. But they don't know how to focus it. Yeah, I mean, this is great. I mean, first of all, join our scientific community and, and contribute. I, I think science is, is really extremely powerful. It is, it is something that connects across borders. It connects across language barriers, right? It, it's really something, a common, a common tool set or set of tools to, to solve problems, uh, uh, on like, like, and you can apply it to so many different layers. And my recommendation is follow your curiosity, right? Follow, follow your, your, um, what do you like to do, right? What are you really excited in doing? Uh, because that will keep you moving. And, and science is also tough from time to time. I mean, most of the time things don't work out as you anticipated them to work out because like with every step you do, with every day you, you, you do research, you're stepping into some new un, un, undiscovered territory, right? So, so the outcomes are often uncertain. And that is not always easy to, 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 to stay motivated and engaged because like it doesn't work out as you thought. So, so in, in that, in, in that sense, like do what you really love to do, uh, uh, work on the topics that you love to work on because that will be the fuel for, for your motivation and, and you moving forward. And of course you also want to be a little bit strategic, right? You want to not only think about what, what you like, but also like, is it getting you where you want to be? Do you want to become an academic? Then, for example, I would say, considered to have a more focused biology because this is what people will be looking for uh, uh talk to friends that are already at that stage talk to mentors seek out enablers in that uh, uh in that field that that can help you to get to the next step uh if you if you want to join industry and do research there which, which is totally possible right like a, a strong technology is also very helpful because it, it it allows you to 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 build something that can be useful for other scientists to apply to different types of biology. But yeah, in the end, I would say my, my, my strongest recommendation is like, do what really excites you because that is in the end, your the currency that you are generating that keeps you moving. I think you've really hit on part of the theme we've been trying to establish with this podcast and that's make science work for you. And, and, you know, by following those passions, you're able to do that. One thing that you just said, though, um, it, it made me think of uh, being a scientist. We often experience failures, like you just said. How do you, as a VP of a startup company that's now publicly traded, how do you manage to incorporate um, that into your messaging to your team and how to not get discouraged? Yeah, I mean, like, like quite frankly, that is something that, 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 that is not always easy, right? And as I mentioned, like science inherently is about like actually failing and moving forward. So the key aspect of it is whenever something doesn't work out, you actually added something to your, the portfolio of your knowledge. You added a data point that was unexpected that, that, that is outside of, of, of your current model. And, and that helps you to broaden it. Right. So, so whenever everything fits what you already thought would happen and then the outcome is predictable and, and, then, then you basically are not adding, you're confirming. So as a scientist, you have to reframe your, like, like that from time to time to say like, okay, if, if it doesn't work out as I expected, if it doesn't, doesn't work, like I actually added something 
useful. I learned something. Now, I also know that this is not always easy because it's so much easier to celebrate positive outcomes than it is to reframe something that didn't work. But but it is it is something that you can train, right? And as long as you fail for the right reason, uh, uh, to, to use that term deliberately, uh, and you learn, you are actually moving forward. And 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 this is also something from, from a cultural perspective that, that we have to to emphasize, right? It is totally fine if things don't work out as long as we figure it out as early as possible and we come up with a solution to 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 the now like obvious like challenge or roadblock, right? We we figure out something else. And more more generally, science is rarely moving forward in these eureka moments, right? It is more about like this, oh, this is a this is an odd observation. This is something that I did not expect. So so it is something that I also try to translate to life in general, right? Like, like, don't always expect that everything will work out, but, but build tools, uh, uh, build a network that is supportive enough to, to carry you through the moments where, where the unexpected happens and, and, and use that as an opportunity to learn and grow. That's great. Have you been able to harness any of those Eureka moments? Have you had that OMG moment where some of these things come together and you have the next bright idea? Yeah, I mean, like if that happens, that's of course like these are the moments you want to want to really keep close to you, right? Because they are like the 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 the, the, the strong motivator, right? Uh, that 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 keeps you moving. And if I look back, like I I do think the fascination, being fascinated about the complexity of nature, was always like my omg moments like even the very early days i was super fascinated about astrophysics and just the scale and 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 the mind-blowing aspects of the universe itself right and it, it's still like a nerdy hobby of, hobby of myself to, to 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 think about that um there's for example also nothing more counterintuitive to think about quantum mechanics and, and and how it violates with your intuition and and those are the things that are great about science because science are on the one hand the lenses through which we can see all these like OMG like like uh, uh, things that are happening around us, but they are also the best way to to get us to an answer that that gives us a deeper understanding of what it truly means. Like what what why are we existing? Like right? why are there things actually rather than nothing? And this is my my inherent like curiosity about like and and, and the reason why I want to do science and more 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 specifically. If, for example, I look back at when, when I joined Matthias Mann's lab uh, uh, doing my PhD and I was like like exposed to this new mass spec technology, we, technologies, we, we had prototypes of mass specs in the lab. And, and, and I mean, how crazy is it, right? You take like just a few micrograms of a biological sample and you get thousands, tens of thousands of molecules, uh, like you quantify them, you basically... It's like a microscope, but you're seeing all these different moving parts and you, you understand how they basically construct life and you get this data and you are able to address disease specific questions. And, and that is really like something with, that is super exciting. And one more recent example that is slightly related, I would say, is what has now become possible with these new AI tools, these transformer language models, right? Like, I mean, the chat GPT is, is a good example, but imagine like, like two years back, like no one would have expected that, but this is how science and technology can move forward, right? It's the unexpected. It's like these eureka moments from time to time, they do happen, right? That, that people, like that things are happening that you didn't expect. And then you think, oh my God, I can use that in a maybe very different way. Like, 
Jet, chat GTP, you can write great emails, but the concept of it is even bigger, right? The concept of it, of connecting knowledge um, and, and, and building context from vast amount of information is something that we can also beautifully use in, in research. So I think there's way more to come and, and, and it's a really exciting time to do research. I have so many questions buzzing here, but I want to try and keep us focused. And so maybe let's go back to the topic of SEER because we haven't mm -hmm. really talked about the science that you do. So can you tell us about the difficulties within the field of plasma proteomics and what SEER is doing that's so important and unique? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I would start with like asking the question, why do we like proteins? Right? Proteins are the functional entities in cells. They are what 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 make a cell act right then they define the shape of a cell they define how a cell interact with other cells they they act as signaling molecules for that reason they 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 are basically defining the phenotype they are very close to the phenotype now we know that the phenotypes are very complex so that also means that the biochemistry is extremely complex of proteins it's not only like a counting exercise right it's not only like a sequencing exercise as we have it in genomics but it is something that you need to have technologies that read out the complexity of the biochemistry. And that is the reason why we love mass specs, right? Because they are extremely capable of um, capturing complex biochemistry of diverse sets of molecules, proteins with post-translation modifications, uh, uh, proteins with different biochemical properties in general. And, and that's why we need them. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the challenge that life is complicated and it happens at the log scale. What it means is that that proteins have very different uh, abundance ranges and concentrations. For example, take plasma. You have 22 proteins making up 99% of the mass um, and you have probably more than 10,000 proteins in that biosample. Now that means that most of the signal is not coming from the majority of the, of the proteins. And it also means that every new protein you identify as you dive deeper into that biosample will be much, much harder to be identified than the previous one. That is like the unfortunate uh, uh, property of, of a super linear uh, distribution. Now, at SEER, we built a technology to address that part. We built a technology where you can dive super deep into the plasma proteome and other complex biosamples by essentially taking that huge amount of information and compressing it to something that is more manageable to the down, downstream detector like a mass spec. So you can think of that as like, like using a technology that does something similar you would do on your computer if you have a very large file and you cannot store it, right? You, you don't want to delete just parts of it, but, but you can compress some of the information. You can make it a little bit less redundant and, and you make it more accessible and, and more manageable, for example, uh, to, your, to your, whatever, your USB uh, drive. Now, what we have at, built at SEER are nanoparticles that we are engineering, that we are functionalizing to have very specified, very specific properties uh, exposed on the surface. So now when a protein, or actually like a proteome, gets into contact with these nanoparticles, what happens is they form the so-called protein coronas. These are complex molecular assemblies on the outer surface of the particle driven by the nanobio interactions. And these nanobio interactions can be tuned in a way that, that they favor certain subsets of the physical chemical space of the proteome. So for example, you look very attractive to 
as a nanoparticle to to proteins that have a negative charge and the capacity to form a hydrogen bond. And now this is uh, perhaps a subset of proteins in your proteome, let's say 10%, right? And you build panels of particles that synergistically probe these property buckets of complex proteomes in order to to compress that dynamic range using competition. So for example, low abundant uh, cytokine might displace a fraction of the high abundant uh, albumin. And by that, you compress that information to something more manageable to your mass spec without needing to subselect like which proteins am I interested in and which are not because these properties are generic enough to capture hundreds, uh, if not thousands of individual proteins. And uh, uh, you can basically do that from a machine learning and engineering side in a way that you understand what proteins could I have, right? And, and what are the properties that I should interrogate? So, so we built our core technology, technology around that in order to enable people to have this upfront workflow to get a more accessible dynamic range of these biosamples in a fully automated way, which of course makes it very scalable. And then you can use the latest, greatest mass spec readout technology to get the complexity of the molecular information that was captured on the surface of a particle. So what are the real implications for human health, for patient stratification from serious technology? Do you see the immediate ability to start applying this? Is it being applied? Yes, absolutely. And and it is exciting to see now, like for, for a little more than a year, the, the technology in the hands of customers. And we will see the first papers that, that are not coming only from SEER, but but also from the customers uh, uh, hitting the market, hopefully this year. So, so this is really exciting. Um, and the way we we have an impact uh, on the community is to combine both aspects, like the depths of coverage, so getting like thousands of proteins and complex biosamples like like human plasma, but also enabling that at the scale and with a degree of automation and reproducibility that it can translate to hundreds and thousands of samples to be monitored. As we know, like like a human population is, is pretty complex. So, so it's often not sufficient to just look at a handful of subjects. You will not be able to, to discover new content because you won't have the statistical power. And that is actually something that Philip Guy and Matthias Mann pointed out a couple of years ago. They were analyzing the, uh, the biomarker uh, distribution across the human plasma proteome. And what they observed is, the peculiar property of biomarkers to be massively biased towards a few most abundant hundred proteins. And they concluded that, well, this is in part due to the incapability of diving deep into the biosample, as well as do it at a scale that you have powered enough data sets to identify a new biomarker. And especially if you're thinking about biomarker signatures that are more complex, for example, a combination of proteins, some of them go up, some of them go down, and that may be uh, indicate indication of, of like you being on the wrong trajectory in terms of your health. Those complex signatures require a lot of biosamples to account for the biological differences on top of that that you have in the human cord. So it's here we our technology is connecting these two things, like the very deep dives that were possible, like for a few dozen samples, if you spent a couple of weeks on those, and the, the very high throughput technologies that were doing uh, hundred, hundreds of samples, but only looking at a few high abundant proteins. And we bring that together, combine that with the unbiased readout capabilities of a mass spec, so, so you're not missing anything, and that we, we are very confident will lead to a lot of new discoveries 
uh, hundreds of new biomarkers are yet to be discovered. And, and we are super excited uh, seeing that be driven by, by our customers. So you talk about the volume of data that, that you're, you're gaining from being able to do these large scale studies. So that brings its own problems. So what are the bioinformatics tools or methods that you use to be able to get meaningful information from all of this data? That's a fantastic question. And, and, and there are a couple of challenges that we were facing and I think the community was facing or is facing right now is like, like scaling some of these tools up to, to, to the aspirational tens of thousands of biosamples is actually not trivial. These data sets that we are generating with the mass spec are tremendously complex. For example, like let's take the Timstoff 2 Pro, right? You, you have like a high resolution mass spec and you get a lot of information on top of that. You may have eye mobility. That's another level of information. And, and you, you generate literally in a study terabytes of data that you need to process in a scalable fashion. And not everyone can employ, especially in academia, like a server farm or, or, or has like software engineers that know how to deal with AWS and, and, and setting all of that up. So, so one of our offerings and one of the problems we also want to address is to enable people to not only generate that high quality data at scale, but also being able to process that. And that then is the raw data processing. The next step is making biological, like, like, interpreting the data in the right way. Because again, like you have peptide information, you have proteins, you have abundances. You So, so, so you have to build tools to, to, to deal with the normalization, for example, that, that is very important, especially when you run larger cohorts where you, where you are required to normalize sam a sample that was run today to a sample that is run in, in a year from now. And all of that, bringing all of that together and make it accessible also for, for the non-proteomics customers, the people that come from the genomics that, that may have never run a mass bag. But yeah, they, they, they want to basically get to the data. They want to understand which protein is going up, which protein is going down. And, and get to that point is actually not trivial, but certainly something that, that we at here also help in, in, in making possible. So you've worked on a couple of the big problems within plasma proteomics. You've worked on the depth of coverage um, because now you can see some of these um, low abundant species and then the next one, the next one. You've worked on the bioinformatics tools. To me, um, a non-expert, it seems like a longitudinal study could potentially be another challenge that would be upcoming here. Is that something that you have your eye on, that you have ideas for how to innovate on? Yeah, I, I do do think longitudinal studies are extremely exciting because, like, they 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 allow us to take every human subject and normalize them by their own baseline, which actually helps a lot dealing with the human heterogeneity. On the other hand, it requires us to to again like have a throughput to to sample like not only an n of one but but maybe hundreds of subjects, and then over time, and 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 that that requires us to have a scalable technology both at the mass spec, but also at the sample preparation, combined with the depths of coverage, and then potentially even something like, like a, a microsampling approach where we can collect samples in a high-frequency fashion. Uh, so, so we can, for example, like look into a small sample that was collected at home, right? People send it in, they don't have to go to a clinic because that is often like a little bit hard to do, uh, uh, especially if we want to have a high tight time course of a few hours in between the sampling time points. There's something that, that matters for proteins because they are changing on that time scale, but it's really hard to do that in a large scale cohort. Like if you have to be in the clinic, right? It, it's not measuring the phenotype, the changes that you have at home. So, so I think it, it, it is a combination of multiple steps, like 
the at-home sampling technologies that can dive deep into the complex matrix, which is, for example, whole blood or which is like a plasma separated on a microsampling device. And then uh, uh, the, the mass spec that is capable of reading out that that technology in conjunction with, with, with CS proteograph, for example, to compress that large amount of information to something that is more manageable. And then again, it connects again to, to the big data that you are generating that you need to be able to process and interpret. So did I miss any of the biggest challenges that are facing the field of plasma proteomics? What else do you see here? And where do, what else needs to be done? Yeah, I do think like, like we talked about a couple of, of the challenges, for example, like the, the historic challenge of com- combining the depths of coverage and the throughput. I think another challenge is uh, how do we incorporate like not only proteins, but post-translational modifications? How do we add like what is unique to proteins? Because every protein is probably present at some time point, right, in a different form in so-called proteoform. So it's a different flavor of that protein. It's actually a different molecular entity, and it has perhaps a very specific role in a particular disease. Now, that adds another complexity of biochemistry that needs to be accounted for both in the sample preparation, but also in the mass spec processing of, of uh, um, of the peptides, and then in the data interpretation and, of course, the biological interpretation. So, so this is something that I think is on the horizon to become more and more important and, and will allow us to really add biological meaning to, to, to the data that we generate. On top of that, one of the challenges that I see is like getting the community even closer together. Um, it is like, I think in the future, we will not have the genomic community and the proteomics community and the metabolomics community, but it will be a community of people that just want to dissect the molecular composition of life because all of these molecules are connected anyways, right? They already crosstalk a lot uh, and, and the genomics community wants to understand literally how their information translates to, to the phenotype. And then we have the small molecule community that, that basically are they want to understand how their small molecule attached to proteins becoming a post-translational modification or how those small molecules are changed as they are processed by enzymes, which are proteins. And that together is mapping out the network of information that essentially gives rise to how a cell functions. So in order to really truly understand how, how, how life works and how it's uh, uh, obscured in the context of a disease, we will need to bring these communities together and the technologies and the data insights. And, and that will be fundamentally changing how we can, can understand biomedical research or how we can progress in biomedical research and understand diseases. So what are your greatest hopes for this year for SEER? Do, do you have anything you can share? Um, anything we should stay tuned to or when we should keep our eye on you for, for new innovations? Yeah, I mean, what, what I personally find most exciting about this year, it's, it's really like now that the that the product is in the hands of customer uh, for a while now, we will see the first publications. We have seen posters, uh, uh, which are great, but we will start seeing publications in peer-reviewed journals. And this is super exciting, not only because we we see how people use it to answer biological questions, but but also just from seeing for for people working at SEER, seeing what people can do with the technology. And I'm, I'm pretty sure they will also do things that we didn't anticipate, right? And that will be our... Uh, eureka moment oh you you can use it like that that that's pretty exciting and and then quite frankly also getting that feedback from the community because we want to be always in this uh we want to learn we want to get feedback we want to understand what works well that's great but also we want to understand what 
uh, what we should improve. What is the next next, right? Well, how, where can we take the technology? Where should we take it? What, what are the pain points currently when you want to investigate a disease? How can we help? How can we team up as a community? And this is super exciting because it's it, it just like working together, uh, bringing technologies together and, and then seeing what great insights we can generate. So you've gotten to the point where your technology is definitely being noticed. I saw that you've been at the JP Morgan conference um, a few times now, and you won an, an award at International Hoopo last year for one of their standout scientist awards. How does it feel to be getting the attention of such large um, organizations and scientific bodies with what you're doing in your daily life and work? Yeah, this is quite frankly very humbling, and 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 I feel really honored. And I know this is. In the end, there's always a big team behind that, right? This is true, I think, always, right? It's 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 not the individual, it's a team. And and the SEER team in particular was putting in so much effort over the last years to get all of that up and running, to to build the product, I would say like almost like in record time, and and then get get something out to to the community to to be useful to them and, and then get the feedback back to to further improve and make the next innovations. And it is great to be part of that, and but I never want to lose track of, of 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 the importance of really the team and also the mentors and enablers that 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 in the end were the reason why we are where we are right now. So so I really do appreciate these opportunities to speak at this uh, uh, these events and 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 to get recognitions. But in the end, it's a motivation to do even better. It's a motivation to 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 make the next steps and 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 also. Just a big thanks to, to, to the entire SEER family and the team. I'm sure that they know how much you appreciate them, but it never hurts to say it one more time. So I have one last question for you. Um, in some of the, the preview materials that I talked about with your team, they told me that you have some interactions with NASA and some fascinations there. So I also have a NASA story. So I was wondering if you'd be willing to compare and we could see if the viewers of the podcast will, will tell us, you know, which one inspires them a little bit differently, maybe. Yeah, so so that was like a very, very exciting, well, opportunity for us, right? To, to, to push the boundaries, literally, uh, uh, in collaboration with, again, like people that you wouldn't usually in, interface a lot, right? So, so this is a huge consortia uh, SpaceX is part of it NASA and 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 so you meet real astronauts right and 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 we were teaming up to do a multi-omics profiling of like like what happens to the, to your physiology uh, at the molecular level if you go to space right if you if you if you take that journey what can we learn about that um, what are the biomedically important pieces of information we have to be aware of if we send people to Mars, right? We want to know what happens to them. Uh, you don't want to be in need of a doctor up there, right? If you're halfway to Mars, it's, it's really something we need to figure out. So we teamed up with them and we looked at uh, uh, the, the blood of, of these astronauts before they, they went up and, and also like after they came back. And what we were able to see is a lot of molecules are actually responding in association with that. Um, and we're in the process right now of, of finishing the paper and analyzing the data, but certainly it affects our physiology. And parts of it might be kind of the stress, like basically the physical stress that, that you are experiencing, 
maybe the microgravity has an effect here. And, and of course, there's so much more to do. You cannot just simply send like a thousand people up to space. So, so there's a little bit of something that hypothesis generating and then validating as we move forward. But it is super exciting. And it, again, like shows the power of combining uh, combining these multiple angles and, 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 and basically homing in on, on, on a biological answer from multiple perspectives. And we were really proud to be part of that. That's really fantastic. I think I really do think your story is better because you got to do the science side of it and the implication side of it. My very yeah. brief snippet is when I was an undergraduate, I got to fly with NASA's Vomit Comet and conduct experiments oh, wow. in zero gravity. So maybe we can have wow. our, our listeners and our viewers tell us if they run, would rather do the analysis or if they'd rather go to zero gravity. Well, I would, I, I honestly, I love analysis, but, but I would take the trip <laughs> <laughs> any, any time. This is, this is, this is really awesome. Yep. Yep. Thanks again for joining us for an OMG Omics podcast. I hope that this fourth installment has helped you see the various paths that people can take as they go through their scientific endeavors and inspire you. Hopefully you as well enjoyed our NASA stories and you can give us a vote in the comment section on if you'd rather be the analysis scientist or the zero gravity scientist. Cheers.